for listening to the Jazz Jewel Show podcast today on the pod. Will it ever end? Public Safety Minister Mike Farnwick joins us to discuss the letter he sent to Surrey Council as the province turns up the pressure. Plus, with stronger than expected economic growth, what are the odds of a Bank of Canada rate hike? And is it time to say goodbye to the single-family home? Our Friday wrap panel weighs in. That's all next on the Jazz Jewel Show podcast. Yesterday on this show, we learned of the letter sent by B.C. Solicitor General to Surrey Council. Uh, Mike Farnworth urged Mayor Brenda Locke and City Councillors to set up a date to vote on the matter and sign uh, non-disclosure agreements to view an unredacted version of the province's report on the issue. Now, more than half of councillors have signed the agreement so far, according to the letter. Uh, Mr. Farnworth also confirmed the province will provide the city's $150 million to ease the transition to SPS. Now, Mayor Brenda Locke responded soon after the letter was released. Take a listen. You know, he could call. He has not called me since this has happened. I will not be intimidated or bullied by uh, a Solicitor General that wants us to jump to his timeline. We do not need uh, to change the police departments. We do need $150 million, though, for schools, I can tell you for sure. We need $150 million to go into our health care system. Certainly not an olive branch there being offered by uh, Mayor Brenda Locke. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Mike Farnworth, Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Why the need to send the letter uh, on your part uh, this week? Well, um, in uh, response to the decision I made in terms of the uh, the recommendation uh, that I that we feel that the uh, the city of Surrey should continue with the Surrey Police transition. Uh, on April the 28th, the uh, the mayor said council would make a decision in about a month, uh, and basically we're at that point. Uh, and I think it, everyone wants the issue resolved. We certainly do. The people of Surrey certainly do. And we've made it clear uh, that, uh, you know, we're prepared to put the $150 million on the table to, to assist with the transition. And it really is uh, up to Surrey to, to make that decision. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the members of the, both the Surrey Police Service and the RCMP. Um, it's costing Surrey uh, about $8 million a month right now. Uh, those are the mayor's uh, own figures, um, you know, while a decision's not being made. And it, it really is time to get on and make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the arguments Mayor Locke and other councillors have made, uh, part of her slate, has said, look, the, the, the ministers had many months to prepare the report, which you uh, made public in late April, April 27th, I believe. Why not give the city more time rather than just the month? Well, the, uh, the reason the report took as long as it did was when the city uh, council got elected and said that they wanted to, uh, to reverse back to the, uh, the, Surrey, or to the RCMP, uh, they have to come forward with a, a plan on how they were going to do it, both the city and the RCMP. We received that plan, and the, uh, the reality is it was lacking. Uh, in a lot of information. And so uh, the Director of Police Services and the staff in my ministry set about getting that information, doing a thorough, comprehensive analysis, not only in terms of how uh, the plan would impact, how it would work in terms of Surrey and safe and effective policing, public safety, but also the impact, the potential impact across the province, because my responsibility is not just for Surrey, but also for the province. 
that's why the, the time was, uh, it took the time that it did to get that analysis done. What the city of Surrey has now is not only the report, and they've had that report now for some time, is they have the unredacted uh, report, and now all nine have now signed uh, since that, uh, since the letter went yesterday. Uh, and that uh, contains a lot of confidential RCMP information. Uh, and the mayor's own words were, it'll take us a month to, uh, you know, we're going to make the decision. People want a decision. Uh, it's costing them $8 million a month right now without a decision. It's time to get on with it. Mm-hmm. So just to cl- clarify with you, Minister, uh, nine city councillors have signed the NDA? Yes, that's what I was uh, told uh, just about uh, an hour ago, that the uh, all of council has now signed the, the, the non-disclosure agreement. So that includes the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Luck. She has signed the NDA. That is correct. Okay. Um, do you have a deadline date uh, in mind uh, in regards to a drop to that date? Like if, if you don't hear for council for a while, it's been just over a month and a few days. But do you have a mental date saying July 1st, if I hear nothing, I'm going to move forward, perhaps towards another action uh, because I have not heard back? I've heard from the, or I've heard that the mayor of Syria apparently this morning said that uh, she expects to have the matter resolved in a couple of weeks. Um, and so I think, you know, all of us want this resolved. The city of Surrey has the information. Uh, they've been dealing with this. They know how much it's costing them, um, you know, without, uh, by not making a decision. And so I expect them to be making a decision fairly soon. If the city of Surrey and Ms. Locke's majority council decide to remain with the RCMP, uh, what are the, some of the concerns you have, number one, and what will they need to do to address some of those concerns for you to be comfortable to go with RCMP? Well, the, the letter outlines very clearly that if the, uh, the city of Surrey decides to go back to the RCMP, first off, they have to, they have to abide by the seven conditions uh, that were contained uh, in the report that was released back in April. Uh, and those are not negotiable. Uh, those are, are, are requirements, and they are binding. So all of those conditions have to be met. Uh, at the same time, um, we need the, the city of Surrey needs to have a the council needs to have a thorough understanding of the costs that will be incurred in terms of going back, and any consequences that uh, that that flow from that. Uh, and that's why it's important that they have the report, that they review it, that they have a vote uh, in. Uh, in uh, in the council, so that they're able to to show that they they understand all of those all of the the things that they need to to abide by. Mm-hmm. Now, the evidence that you and your uh, the ministry staff saw uh, provided you enough information that uh, continuing the transition to the SPS was the right decision, based on previous decisions made by another council, resources that have already been allocated, and processes that have been set up in some cases. Um, if uh, the move is towards the RCMP, uh, why would you not want to help the city with dollars as well? You've already said $150 million if they continue the transition to the SPS. Would those dollars be available if they wanted to remain with the RCMP? Because they believe over the long term it still makes more financial sense to stick with the RCMP. Absolutely not. There will be no financial assistance uh, to the city of Surrey if they go back to the RCMP. That has been made clear uh, in the letter. That has been clear since, uh, since day one. Uh, they made the decision, the, uh, the council made a decision to go to Surrey Police Service. This council wants to go back to Surrey Police Service. They have the, the, the ability to do that. 
uh, and uh, but that will be on their own their own dime. Um, we said, uh, and I said that uh, I recognize that going to the Surrey Police Service is not uh, their preferred uh, option, uh, but it, in the determination of the uh, Director of Police Services and my ministry, it is the best in, from the province's perspective in terms of ensuring uh, public safety and safe, effective policing in Surrey and the rest of the province. That's why we're prepared to put the $150 million uh, on the table uh, which I noted, uh, you know, a, few, a week ago on the show, the mayor didn't think was there, but that's one another reason we sent the letter is that the uh, the money is there to assist with the uh, the transition, and that money is based on uh, their numbers and uh, what they estimated their costs at. Minister, have you run out of patience? That's my final question. Have you run out of patience? Um, it's not that I've run out of patience. Uh, I, like most people, would like to put this issue to bed. Um, that's why the, uh, the letter was sent. That's why the money was there. Um, and to, uh, to, 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 to have a proper safe transition. Uh, and that's what I expect to take place. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. Uh, Bye-bye. BC Strata insurance crisis has been unfolding for many years. Uh, now an imminent rule change could mean that over 100,000 100, Strata owners are facing significant cost increases as well. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Andrew Lester, president of First Service Financial. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on. So walk me through uh, what the changes will look like as of July 1st and how they'll impact people. Yes, you see, um, uh, First Service Financial owns uh, a brokerage called FS Insurance Brokers, and mm. we service uh, clients for First Service Residential, one of the largest uh, strata property manager brokers uh, in British Columbia. And my team of local experts for the past decade has been supporting uh, strata councils in the, in the purchase of their insurance through education, risk management tools, and, um, and, and claims uh, resources. And what's going to happen on July 1st is a result of the Insurance Council of British Columbia passing a rule not to allow uh, common ownership companies from servicing clients in the insurance business. So after July 1st, uh, our clients that we've been supporting for a decade are going to be facing a little bit of a crisis because the support structure is not there. Uh, how many customers does your company uh, deal with? Over 600 strata properties. So that's about you know, over 100,000 residents in, mainland, in lower mainland, uh, British Columbia. The common ownership um, rule that is being brought in, what was the concern or issue it was addressing? Or just the question, there is, it's just the fact that you, you've got two services being offered here and it's, and it's a bit too inside baseball, it's a little too close that they want to separate those entities? You know, that's a question that we've been asking um, for the past year, year and a half. You know, we've been very transparent with, with our clients for a decade. Um, we've been uh, very uh, upfront and disclosed our relationship, which is a common owner publicly traded company, a Canadian publicly traded company. Um, and the, 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 the issue they put forth is this conflict of interest, a perceived conflict of interest. And so it's, it's really fascinating because we don't, see that as a conflict of interest because we're working for our clients to actually minimize the premiums mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, it's the same conflict of interest that would exist for every single insurance broker out there. 
Insurance brokers are paid a commission, and that commission is set by the carriers. It's not something that is negotiated. Um, and ultimately, if premiums go up, brokers make more money. Mm-hmm. Because of our alignment with our Strata brokerage uh, sister company, we're actually focused to, to drive those premiums down and help our clients in terms of their, their experience of living in a strata, both in terms of monetary economic needs, but also just in terms of lifestyle. Whenever you have a, a claim, you're, you're going to be put out of your home, and that's a big problem. So we want to ma- make sure that we're minimizing that exposure for all of our residents. Is fact, there, for the past decade, we've been standing on the rooftop saying, hey, look at us. Look what we're doing. Uh, we've not been trying to hide behind anything that is uh, uh, untransparent or opaque. The concern, as you say, is conflict of interest. Is, are there not further uh, rules you could put in at the corporate level to, 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 to show greater clarity, greater separation uh, that could address those concerns? Well, one of those, those, those rules and process procedures have been put in place already for the past few years, and especially in 2020, when the, um, the act changed to actually reinforce and heighten the disclosure, specifically around commissions. So, now, multiple times during the year, a broker has to disclose its commission and how much it's earning. So there's a lot of transparency that's already been put in place. I would say, is, could it go further? Absolutely. We're a big believer in rules. Um, and it's, it, it, it did come about in 2020 because there was this aspect of other uh, strata brokers receiving referral fees. Um, that's quite different than what we've been practicing, as I said, for the past decade. What do other provinces do with, with something of this sort? Are, are there anything, is there anything similar to what's happening here in British Columbia, or are we the only province to do this? You know, actually, we operate you know, throughout North America. Um, my team of uh, insurance brokers uh, support well over 5,000 renewals on an ongoing basis. There is no such regulation in its existence throughout North America. Period. So what happens July 1st? Do you, do you have to sell those brokerages? Do you, do you do different types of insurance that doesn't deal with specifically those customers? What happens? Um, we, we have to stand down. We are not allowed to conduct insurance business. So typically we're supporting the strata manager. Mm-hmm. We're educating the strata councils. We're educating the strata residents. And this rule is effectively eliminated my, my local team from being able to support those, uh, those, those constituents. Uh, have you ha- been able to speak to government uh, on this issue? Uh, absolutely. I, I, would, I would like to say that, that we've been working over the past few months with the finance minister to try and educate her uh, in terms of what the issues are, how we operate, our transparency, our programs. Um, and it's been positive conversations, but we're getting closer to July 1st. So obviously... You know, we are getting nervous, our clients are getting nervous, um, and we're really hopeful that we're going to find a solution, which we're trying to work uh, with the government on. How confident are you, though? I mean, like you say, this is uh, less than four weeks now, uh, and uh, government, the leaders of government always work a little slow. I know deadlines sometimes are a good thing with government, but what's your sense of things? I mean, can you find a solution here in the next couple of weeks? Um, we, we are, we hope we're hopeful. I have to be positive and optimistic given our long tenure in this marketplace. It's also, and, and I, I, I want to express what we've done over this past decade and what the government and how we support them. And in 2020, there was the BCFSA report about the state of insurance in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And there were some really, really good recommendations and direction that 
that, that the province was going to take. When we looked at that report, we said, we're doing that. And we showed that factual evidence to the finance minister and tried to explain to her that these are the programs that if British Columbia was to adopt them right across the board, residents would see a drop in premiums. And that is very important given the platform of, of housing affordability. Um, and I want to I want to give you the numbers mm-hmm. because it's in the report. The in twenty this all started back in twenty eighteen when when the care insurance carriers started to have issues with profitability. Yep. In twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, the the loss experience, which is you know how much dollars you have to pay in claims uh, per per dollar of premium collected, was ninety six percent, ninety eight percent, and ninety and eighty six percent. We showed the government, our data for those two years as a compared to it, mm-hmm. we were half. If your loss experience, just to translate that, if you have less accidents in your car, your car premiums will go down. And the same thing's true for property insurance. Okay. So in this case, though, the, the, you're saying that it works because you're able to work with, with the, the various stratas, but the core concern here is eliminating conflict of interest or the government's idea of the conflict of interest. And at this point, what you're saying is that it has been working, it has been working, and the government right now in your mind hasn't been convinced or is slowly being convinced and you've got about three weeks left or you're going to have to shut down. That's right. We're Hopefully we're slowly convincing them. It's It's... it's how the conflict of interest gets eliminated when you operate in a very transparent manner. So it goes back to what our, our principles are. You know, most brokers just show up at renewal, and that's when they present the, the price tag for the, 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 the premium mm-hmm. for the insurance package that the strata council has to renew. We work with that strata council 365 days a year. They know exactly who we are, and every year they choose to, to, to work with us. And if they don't want to work with us, we will work with any broker that they so choose as well. So we try to go through everything to eliminate this conflict of interest, and we're welcome to talk to the government and the Insurance Council of BC to put in even more rules, but not ones that are going to completely eliminate a single brokerage from practicing uh, a craft that they've honed and that has the expertise to support the same goals that the government uh, and the residents of BC want, right? Lower premiums. Yeah. Mr. Lester, thank you so much for your time. We've run out of time. Appreciate your, uh, your, you uh, chatting with us today. Thank you so much. Let's uh, talk about something other than Surrey policing. Let's talk a little bit about the economy and interest rates for a moment. Stats Canada reported earlier this week that the country's economy grew by 3.1%. Uh, in the first quarter of 2023, beating uh, StatCan's own 2.5% forecast. Now, economists say Canada's latest GDP figures raises the odds of further rate hikes from the Bank of Canada, uh, although the central bank, some have said, may wait for more data before stepping off the sidelines. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about um, this potential rate hike is Michael Levy, CKNW's business analyst. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon, and thank you for uh, speaking to us today. You know, you have no idea how nice it's to talk about something other than Surrey policing for a little while. <laughs> oh, my. I just, I was listening to the news and listening to you before the news. And, you know, even I am happy to get back to the, you know, the humdrum of interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> <Surrey> police. 
Melodrama. And of course, interest rates and economy are so very important yeah. for, for, uh, for, for our economy, of course. And I do want to add today, the Real Estate Board of, Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver uh, said that the May home sales increased by 15.5% compared to the same month a year ago, as average prices also rose a little bit as well. But I want to put this all into context. First and foremost, Michael, um, right now, when you see this talk about a potential rate hike. Markets have said, look, it's only a 40% chance of a hike next week, but a 100% chance of another hike by September. Uh, what do you see? Well, isn't that funny, Jazz? And I mean, not funny, haha. Isn't that funny? Because there is a chance of a rate hike next month, but some analysts are looking at maybe no rate hikes between now and the end of the year unless things really get out of hand. And my own read on it is the Bank of Canada does not want rates to go up because they are afraid that is going to make such a big difference in the working of the economy here in Canada. Uh, If the rates go up, mortgage rate goes up, mortgage rates go up, consumer loan rates go up, and um, that that will have an immediate and definite impact on the stock market. So the U.S. and Canada are basically in lockstep in wanting to keep rates around this level and see if these higher rates are going to have impact as we make our way through the second half of the year. My thought is there could be one more. I'm still on the Bank of Canada's page of let the rates at uh, uh, at, at five or five and a quarter percent do their job. But if this continues to get out of hand, they're going to have to raise rates and then Katie bar the door because uh, we are going to get a downturn that is going to come. But you start raising rates into the specter of a downturn and you can see stock markets in big trouble and you can see employment in big trouble. So I think it's a real balancing act. And I think the wish is, is they won't have to. But if they do, it's going to be one and done unless they really are uh, their 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 feet are held to the fire by inflation. I mean, it's a beautiful day outside today. People are going to have a wonderful weekend, lots to do. Uh, but at its core, when you step away from sort of enjoying the spring and summer here in Vancouver, uh, there's a. I mean, a lot of people and businesses are hurting right now with the rise of these rates uh, occurring so quickly. Maybe my sense is wrong, but it seems to me that it masks a lot that's already happening behind the scenes that people and businesses are struggling. They are struggling. And I can tell you something that I noticed, and my wife and I were talking about it, is if you go into sort of a mid to higher level restaurant, now, the lower, uh, the, 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 the sort of mid to lower have raised their prices because minimum wage is going up and, and cost of labor and, and wage increases definitively impact. But you get into a bit of the higher end restaurants, and, and the fact is they're holding their prices, Jazz, because they want to fill their restaurants. And uh, even at the cost of profits, they're not going to become unprofitable. But some of the restaurants, the menus I've seen haven't changed in the last two or three years. So I think it depends where you are in the spectrum. But uh, I can tell you that wage costs are a killer. All you have to do is watch and listen to the news and you can see the number of people that cater to the working class individual in British Columbia 
they're barring their or are barring. They are closing their doors. They're shuttering their windows. And that's the balancing act that I was just talking to you about that the Bank of Canada has to play with. Mm-hmm. I was at a, a housing symposium in uh, Maple Ridge a couple of days ago. I was moderating a conversation with four uh, with you know for profit developers and for the nonprofit sector as well. And one of the things that I, that I heard from developers is. A lot of these bigger developers are being offered deals where the sort of mid-tier developer isn't able to move forward. They may have had the property. They may have been developing the property. They've been marketing the property. Mm -hmm. But with the rise of interest rates, they are unable to continue with the deal because the rates have gone up so quickly. The business model doesn't work. They don't think they can sell it. So they're stuck with this land trying to make payments every month. So they're packaging these things up, trying to sell to bigger players that hopefully somebody will buy, and they're not. And so my sense of it, and this is just a couple of days ago as I was listening to these stories and these developers telling them that they've been offered a lot of these deals around Vancouver, there's a lot of mid-term develop- mid-tier developers you know, who will build condo developments, things of that sort, and they cannot carry some of the properties that they have, or they're barely holding on and moving forward, even a quarter inch rate hike can make a huge difference, as you were saying. Well, it does. And there's a lot of those developers, uh, funny you should talk about them, because I was also talking to some people about this, who have got, they're permitted to go, but -hmm. their costs have gone up so much that they can't afford to build on the property at the line of lines of credit they've got. So they're doing exactly what you're saying. They're either going out for further credit if they're credit worthy enough. Otherwise, they're trying to dispose of the property. And the fact is, is we need housing so badly, particularly in the lower mainland of British Columbia. It's such a shortage of housing. And the new permitting is coming in fast and furious because they're financing at rates like today. And they are going to be able to make that work. I was looking at one development, Jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, out in Metrotown, and they're starting, they're breaking ground on a 67-story high-rise that is going to be mid-level and a little higher people that are looking for housing. That is, wow, that's amazing. Uh, but my worry is that it, it, with, the, with the way the market is and fluctuating, it may challenge and make it difficult for folks to build sort of purpose-built rentals and those kinds of yeah. uh, um, condominiums and apartments that we desperately need um, in, in our market. Michael, I'm just curious, what impact, if any, will the job numbers have in regards to the U.S.? They seem to be doing very well um, uh, in that country. Canada seems to be doing okay as well. What does that tell you overall? Well, it tells me overall that the economy is reasonably healthy. We just started with 3.1% in the first quarter, annualized uh, a rate of 3.1% gain. Well, in the U.S., their uh, U.S. unemployment is at 3.7%. Now, that's up about a tenth of a percent from what it was last month. But the fact is, is that they uh, created 339,000 new jobs in May, and uh, they upwardly revised March and April by 90,000. And don't think that next week on Friday, when the Canadian numbers come out, I don't understand why they weren't out today. The U.S. puts them out instantaneously. We sometimes lag. But next week, I think Canadian numbers are going to be very good also. Just look at the help wanted signs, and there is a shortage of labor. So I think that uh, we're going to see very good employment numbers, but let those interest rates go up and start to take a bite out of businesses, and you can see a fast turn in the employment market or, or in employment, and that's what 
going back to our original conversation, that's what everybody's worried about, is the fact is that uh, we, we could see big, big problems in employment. And when that happens, shopping stops, stores get slower. So it's really a a balancing situation right now. Uh, in regards to inflation, uh, we certainly haven't beat it, but in your mind, we're, we're heading in the right direction. We're doing okay? Yeah. Uh, let, let me just give you, if I might, Jazz, this will just take a moment. But mm-hmm. let's say a basket of goods cost $100 this month, and inflation went up by 9%. The rate of inflation went up by 9%. So that same basket of uh, items of goods will cost $109, $100, 9%. In the next month, the rate of inflation only went up 4%. So you're thinking, okay, it only went up $4. But now you're not dealing with $100, you're dealing with $109. Mm -hmm. So instead of the new basket of items being worth $113, the 9% and the 4%, it's worth $113.36. The following month, rate of inflation increases by 5%. You tack those raises onto what the basket of goods has grown to. So uh, it, 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 it starts a multiplier effect, and we really, really have to be worried about that and that rate of inflation and piling on one after the other. That's going to have the biggest impact going full circle. In yeah, our absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully, better days uh, in the fall uh, for for a lot of folks. Michael, thank you. Thanks, Jazz. This week, a couple of newspapers had some interesting stories on the same subject. In this case, the Washington Post and our local Vancouver Sun. The question simply that they were answering is, why is steak getting pricier? Well, based on both articles, what it tells us is that ranchers are shrinking cattle herds because of drought and high costs and cutting down uh, on, which is cutting down on North America's supply of beef. Now, that threatens to push prices for steaks and burgers uh, to records. Now, in the U.S. alone, um, the culprit is rapidly shrinking supply of cattle after years of persistent, persistent uh, drought conditions, uh, which, uh, as I was saying, this makes cattle more expensive. There's also uh, pandemic disruptions, widespread uh, cost increases. Um, it's prompted a lot of ranchers and pushed a lot of ranchers to sell off uh, livestock, bringing number of cattle in the U.S., to the lowest level in nearly a decade. Now, based on um, some presumptions for 2024, the, the U.S. believes that beef production is on track to drop more than 2 billion pounds in 2024, which marked the biggest annual decline since 1979, and that's according to the Agriculture Department data uh, in the U.S. So it's not just beef prices that are going up, which means you're going to be paying more for a steak at a restaurant, even a hamburger, uh, but it's many other um, uh, you know things you can buy at restaurants. Generally, you go to any restaurant today, whether it be high-end restaurant or a white spot, you're paying a lot more for your meal. Joining me now to talk a little bit why we're paying so much at the restaurant is Imad Jakub. He's the CEO, president, and proprietor of Global. Group Imad, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's good to be there. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I was looking at a couple of articles uh, over the last few uh, days, one in the Vancouver Sun, one in the Washington Post, but both had uh, the same themes, which was the cost of beef was going up significantly uh, for a variety uh, of reasons, uh, but uh, there's definitely no doubt that uh, it's going up. Have you noticed that already in your restaurants? Oh, yeah. The, the prices is actually been shooting up this year uh, in the last year in in a way that it's 
not just is unsustainable, but it's wiping up bottom lines for lots of restaurateurs and lots of small businesses. Uh, as example, our beef prices up uh, in the last four months about maybe 15 to 18 percent. Uh, some of the other cuts are up about 24 percent. So to just make it easy for you, just for a, for a restaurant to run their numbers correctly, if they were selling you a burger, they say for $15, with that price increase, they should be selling you the, the burger for about $22 to $24. Now, restaurants are not going to do that because they know if they, the minute they do that, they're going to lose your business. So something has to give. So they end up taking uh, one on the chin, hoping that the prices might go down and keep you as a customer. Hmm. Uh, and have you? Do you have any sense that uh, of whether or not uh, that is? Uh, you said it's been it's been there for a little while now. But do you see that perhaps easing into the into late into twenty twenty three, or is this something that's going to be persistent for a while? It, it, no, this is a, it, because it's a commodity. We kind of us as a company were a lot bigger, so we when we purchase, we buy uh, commodities. So we kind of like secure our prices for the next ten months to a year. Uh, the increase is going to stay with us for the next year. And we're taking a chance on that because now any other extra increase that's coming up in the next six months, we don't need to pay for it. But, uh, but we know the reason we secure it because we committed to such a massive volume on that price just in case the price goes more up. Because you're going to get to a point where you can't, you, you're not going to be able to afford to take it on the chain. So the last solution you have, you have to raise your pricing, but if you raise your price, customer might stop coming. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's something that you have to kind of put your head down and just take it and hoping that everything will balance. Uh, and the issue overall with the restaurant industry, uh, we're, we're seeing the inflation easing, although uh, it's not at the level that we want to see it at. Can we see, um, you know, yeah, but it's, it, but it's not really but it's not really easing because people are not realizing. Example, inflation that that settled, it's one hundred percent got got uh, wiped out by the increase of the minimum wage, um, because uh, we're talking about uh, the minimum wage increase, fifty percent of minimum wage increase. That's that's. Uh, even if your price of the, the food has been settled, you got it on the other side. You see, we get, we take it from everywhere. Like it's uh, uh, when the when the, um, when the labor is balanced, then the landlord starts raising their prices. So it's kind of like it's you're always there is, you're always fighting battles on every every front. But what I'm watching to my my numbers right now that everything that the minute we secured our pricing and we start the balancing our numbers. It all got wiped out uh, last week with the minimum increase. Uh, the minimum wage increase. Um, yeah, yeah. What is what is this meant overall with the, with COVID, uh, inflation, the food price challenges, and restaurant being running a restaurant is never easy at the best of times. What has been some of the permanent trends are you seeing in the restaurant industry today because of what all of that's transpired in regards to inflation, well, COVID? What, Yes, I am. I am actually. I don't want to be calling. Like you know, for a while we we all said because of COVID, it's going to be lots of bankruptcy, and and it didn't happen. And the main reason it didn't happen because the government really, really supported the restaurant industry in that time with all these uh, guaranteed loan, with all these uh, credit on labors and credit on rent. 
that got everybody out of the, uh, the red. But now, because there's no support of anything, I think it's just start catching up. Because I, I, I'm watching it and I'm talking to lots of my, my restaurant friends is, uh, you, you, you run on a 5%. That's most of the restaurants that, the fanciest restaurants, the, 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 the little restaurant, we run on a 5%. So imagine is anything that you're gonna buy in the restaurant, it, by the time you put all your cost in it, it costs you nine, five, 95% of that price. So a $10, a $10 uh, something you buy in the restaurant, by the, end, by the time you add the labor and you add the cost of the product and everything is that's involved, it is costing that restaurant that's selling you for $10, $9.50. So you're only playing with the 50 cents. You're not playing with that much. So when prices increase or something come out of the ordinary uh, bad weather week that it dropped the sales, this is where people take it on the chin and take it so, so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I have a very strong feeling of me watching what's happening in the city right now and what's happening with my numbers too, that it's going to call it uh, adjustment in the restaurant industry is prices might have to all increase one shot. And I'm talking about a massive increase between 20 to 30% in the restaurant business or restaurants going to close. But then if I, if we compare Vancouver, I just came back from Tokyo, just came back from Tokyo. And if I compare our prices in Vancouver of food to the prices of Tokyo, we're about probably about 35 to 40% cheaper in Vancouver than Tokyo right now. Hmm. Uh, in regards to that pricing then, um, if you have to increase uh, the cost, the structural increase that you're talking about here, 10, 25%, maybe 30%, that means what you're going to see in the next year or so are restaurants going down then potentially. I mean, this is, this is the moment that we had all been talking about. Yes, because, it's, because you can't just go ahead and increase the prices one shot you shock the system. So what normally is like restaurants like our would turn around and say, okay, the price of the beef went up quite a bit. Which beef on the menu that you take it on the chain and which beef you raise the price? Because you don't just go ahead and just add another $10 on every cut of beef. So you take a certain steak, you have to look at the market around you, you have to look at your competition, and then you raise it $2 here, a dollar here, uh, maybe on the salad you add another dollar, so it doesn't look like a big shocker. But then you add a dollar on the salad, and then tomorrow the lettuce prices because of the inflation goes up. So everything that you add on the salad is gone, but the beef is still up. And that's when, when, when it gets to a point, when that was the breaking point, that people start realizing, I can't raise prices anymore. My price is already up about 30% comparing from last year. But now my customers slowing down. They're not coming in. Or they're coming to a restaurant and the consumer habits change. What does that mean is the people, they're going to end up spending what they have in their pocket. So if I was willing to walk into a restaurant and spend $50 in the restaurant, well, you raise your price of steak. Well, then I'm not going to have a steak. Maybe I'll have a chicken this time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's, you're still only going to spend the 50 but no. the 50 is not covering the labor that went up and the rent that went up and the cost of everything that went up. 
Now, you said that, look, the, the, the cost of minimum wage has gone up. It has by about a third, uh, and uh, it is the highest um, in this country. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it's tied to inflation, which most people say it will be, uh, now some would argue, look, th- this is an expensive city. We should be able to pay people a good minimum wage. No, no. What does it yeah, mean to... I, I, what I, I agree, I agree, I agree a, a million percent on this. You mm-hmm. need to understand from a restaurant point of people, mm-hmm. uh, the restaurant tours will always tell you that. We will not more than agree. Like, so I'll give you an example. None of my cooks, none of my cooks, none of my dishwashers, and that's the entry level, will make minimum wage. Will make a lot more than minimum wage. Sometimes 25%, 30%, 40%, double, almost double the minimum wage. Our cooks. So where is this minimum wage is going? The minimum wage is going into the waiters that they're making tips. Or they're making a lot more than the minimum wage. So if we look at the old restaurants, the minimum wage was supposed to be to help the people that they're not making a good, uh, a reasonable living. You know what I mean? Fifteen dollar. Mm-hmm. You can live in this city on a fifteen dollar, but it's not helping these people. It's actually going into the waiter that could be going home with two hundred dollar a night for five hours work. So he's making about fifty bucks an hour, right? Mm-hmm. But we're giving him an increase. I think that's when when some cities look at that and decided that we could do a different type of an increase, where they call it uh, service increase, like people that tips get different increase than the regular people but the government didn't want to play that game because they didn't want to have the backlash on them by uh, for people saying is what about if you're working in a place like McDonald's I mean if I'm working at a McDonald's I should be making more than the 15 bucks an hour yeah right I'm telling you right now all our dishwashers uh, like our our entry dishwasher is 18 and that's the entry entry uh, entry level right mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you're working as a dishwasher in our restaurant for, I have some of my dishwashers that have been working for 10 years, they're in the $22, $23 an hour. So you're going to see that everywhere. It's just how the minimum wage has been put in. That was the problem. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I will, you will never meet a restaurateur that is not happy to pay their cooks more. I prefer to take this money that I'm forced to pay to somebody's making 50, 60 bucks an hour and I have to give them increase to give it to the cooks or I have to raise the price on everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Imad, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, no problem, no problem. No problem. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.